Thank you for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. It's our prayer that this message will be both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith. If you missed this week, we hope you'll join us next Sunday at 9 a.m. for Sunday school or 10 a.m. for worship. Now, here's this week's message. Well, good morning. So maybe you noticed, if not, we have new connection cards for your convenience. And one thing you can do with these uh, new connection cards is, for one, again, if you're a guest, you can fill it out, and um, we'll send you some more information. But more importantly, or probably just as equally as importantly as it should say, is you can sign up for those growth track classes we keep talking about, the 101, the 201, and the 301. And remember, growth track classes are to help you go uh, faster and farther in your faith or further faster in your faith. Like 101 is about the church and about our church and how to become a member of the church. 201s about the essentials to your spiritual life and and some things like that and and so in your bulletin we have the dates or the worship guide we have the dates for the next classes and we just ask you to sign up for that the next 101 class if you haven't taken it is march 1st we'd love for you to join us and, and come be a part of that it's directly after the service it takes about two hours but i promise it'll go by quick and for the 101 class we even feed you lunch like welcome to baptist life we have lunch that's how that works but the 201 uh, is coming up next weekend, so if you've already taken 101, we'd love for you to sign up for 201 and, and be a part of that with us next weekend. You can sign up through that connection card again, or you can go online and sign up, and we'll register you for that class. So today, moving on now, so today we're turning uh, the corner in Ephesians once again. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 3. We're continuing our series called The New You where it's all about what Christ has done in you, what the gospel is, what grace is. This whole letter of Ephesians explains a lot of different things. The two, the two first chapters that we've already looked at, right? If, if you're coming just today or maybe you haven't been here for a while, you're coming like in the middle of a movie. You're coming in the middle of it so you can go back online and catch up and, and hear all the other messages that led up to this. But in chapter 1 and 2, we see Paul tell the story of God's saving work in Jesus Christ. We see that God is the primary character. Human beings are the recipients of what God is doing and what God has done in the world. And he paints this beautiful and amazing picture of the gospel. He basically says this. He says, the world is full of living dead people. Now, Paul didn't use this illustration. I'm going to. It may catch you off guard, but in the 21st century, we probably know what this is. Anybody ever heard of a zombie? Yeah, never heard of that talked about in church, have you? Well, that's basically what Paul says. He said you were zombies. You were dead, but you were alive. You were living dead people who were controlled by their cravings and their flesh and all those desires and thoughts that go along with being a living dead person. Paul said that's what you were. That's what the world is full of. And you're deserving of wrath like because that's evil. It's not good. And we would all agree, of course, zombies aren't good. We get that. We understand that. He said, but, but God did something. God stepped in and has done something. He has done something and made us alive in Jesus Christ. Because of what Christ has done, because of who he was, he now offers salvation, right, through faith, this thing called grace. He, he offers all of that and makes us alive in Christ Jesus. In other words, we are saved by grace, not by our works. So he says, we were dead, but now we are alive because of Jesus Christ. 
And he has been molding us and has a purpose and a plan for us. This new you has a new purpose, a new design. And we learned last week that grace, while it saves us, grace also brought us a gift. It brought relational peace. Well, because Christ has reconciled us with God, that means Christ has fixed the problems that human beings have with God. He's reconciled us with him so we can be reconciled with each other. The things that naturally separate people can now be brought together, have now been done away with because of Jesus Christ. In short, he says this. He says, God has saved you. God has saved others. Now come together and get to work. That's, what he's, that's the picture he's painted so far. And he knows this can be challenging. He knows it can be hard to grasp. And so he wants to pray for them. He wants to tell them, hey, listen, I know I've laid this out, but I want to I pray for your strength, and I want to pray that you understand this. And he starts to do this, but then he gets well, distracted. He goes off on a little bit of a digression. He gets into something else, and you'll see why. If you have your Bibles, again, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. If you don't have it with you, it'll be back here on the screen so you can follow along. He says this, he said, for this reason, meaning everything he just talked about, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Now let's stop right there because this is the first time he's actually mentioned he's in prison. And this isn't metaphorically speaking, like, you know, like your wife's your ball and chain or your husband's your ball and chain. I better use both there. He's not metaphorically. Paul is literally in prison. And it's pretty hard to mention that you're in prison without explaining why, Right? You don't just kind of gradually say, yeah, I was in prison for a little bit and just keep going with the conversation. You, you need to explain that out. And so he does. He says, a prisoner. Well, for the sake of you Gentiles. And so he explains what this means. He's explaining out now for the sake of you Gentiles means. He says this, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. Now, this word administration also means stewardship or responsibility. He says, surely you have heard about the responsibility of grace that's been given to me for you. You see, Paul knew, and I hope you know, that grace is not only to save you, grace is also for you to extend and give to other people. Paul said, hey, God has given me this responsibility. Surely you've heard about all that I've been doing. Verse 3, he says, that is... The mystery. Who likes a good mystery show or book? Yeah, okay. The mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. What's this mystery, Paul? Don't worry, he's going to tell us. He says, in reading this, you will then, excuse me, in reading this, then you will be able to understand my insights into the mystery of Christ. Now, before we go on further, mystery does not suggest something is hidden. He's saying, now a secret has been revealed. Meaning it was a mystery and you didn't even know it was a mystery because he hasn't even said something. But now this thing has been revealed by God. And he says, this mystery has been revealed by revelation. Which means, he's already discussed it a bit, but he's going to spell it out. That God has told him something. That God has shown him something. That God is using him for something in particular. He says, which was not made known, this mystery, the mystery was not made known by the people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God's holy apostles and prophets. You see, through the foreshadowing, and we can see this in the Old Testament, we see that Christ and and the gospel was foreshadowed in the past, but it wasn't clearly spelled out. But now through the apostles and through the prophets, it's been made known. 
You see, the apostles, they were the early church leaders authorized by Christ to go out. It literally means sent ones. They were the ones who would sent to plant churches, to grow churches, to mature churches. They would just help the people of God and establish what Christ has asked them to do. So that's what an apostle is. And then we have a prophet. There's somebody who proclaims God's word in a divine revelation. Now, sometimes we see prophets foretell the future, meaning they predict things. But usually prophets just tell you how it is, which is very uncomfortable. They get arrested. They get thrown in jail by their own people. I mean, the prophets did not have it easy, but they're speaking on behalf of God. So he's saying, in other words, God has done something. God is doing something. It's not just me who God's revealing this through. It's also through the other apostles and prophets. Like, you've heard about them. You hear what they're saying, that God has done something. What is this? Well, he tells us, verse 6. He said, this mystery, this mystery, this is it. This is the mystery that he's explaining. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members of one body, and share together in the promises in Christ Jesus. Now to us, we're like, okay, no, no, this is a really, really big deal. He's saying through the gospel, that means everything he's talked about in chapters 1 and 2, that whole salvation history, what God has done in Christ, that God has eternal plan, and it came to fruition in Jesus Christ. We were dead, but now we're made alive. We have a purpose and plan. All of that, he's saying, the gospel has done this, where now God has brought all people together. Now it's not just Jews who are God's people. Now it's anybody that is in the Messiah can be the people of God. He says they share in the inheritance. This is a way in the Bible to refer to the salvation that we receive because of Christ. He says they are fellow members of one body, which he's explained that Christ is the head. We are the members. We are the family of God. And then he says there are equal shares in the promises. And this takes us back to Abraham. This takes us back to the first covenant. All the stuff that Israel claimed that happened because of Abraham, because of the covenants, and because of what God was doing. He says now, now it's been expanded. Now it includes all people in the Messiah. You see, because of Jesus Christ, the people of God, Israel, that group has now been expanded to include everyone. You see, some people say, well, the church replaced Israel. That's not true. Some people say, well, no, God has different plans between Israel and the church. Well, that's not true. What he says here is that now all people through the Messiah can be the people of God. You had this one group, Israel, now it's expanded because Christ has fulfilled it all. Now all people can be God's people in Jesus Christ, which is a really big deal if you're a Gentile. How many of you were Gentiles? If you're not Jewish, raise your hand. You're a Gentile. This is us. He's talking about us, you and me. That's why we have the gospel. This is us. The reason we can claim to be God's people is because of this. We should be excited. Like, thank you. He says, and I, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. Listen, Paul's making it clear. He said, I didn't earn my ministry. I'm not someone special or something amazing. God gave me this ministry. He entrusted me with it. You see, Paul views ministry as a gift. And if you've ever volunteered in church, you know that you can kind of get burnt out and wore out sometimes, and you can feel as if you were offering your gift to God. 
to which Paul says, no. No, no, you're not offering a gift to God. God has given you a gift for him. Ministry is a gift. Service is a gift that God has given us. He says, although I am the least of all the Lord's people. He actually says, I am the leasterist. He coined a new word. I am the leasterist, the least of the least. I am the leasterist of all the Lord's people. What he's getting at, he's saying, I'm not special. God has simply tasked me, and I'm carrying that out. This is what he's asked them to do. He says, although I'm the least, then the least of the Lord's people, this grace was given to me. Here's what he's been asked to do. This gift was given to him to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ, to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for the ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. He's saying, God gave me this task to pioneer these efforts. He gave me the task to preach to the Gentiles. He's saying, I've been given the task to communicate to people the endless riches of Christ. Meaning, there's never a time that we can say we finally arrived. Paul's saying, no, there's the endless riches. It just keeps going and going. And I've been tasked to do this, to telling people about the salvation and explaining to them how they can have a new life in Christ. To which as Gentiles we say, thank you, Paul. Thank you for doing that. And he says, but also the administration of the mystery. He's saying, so I've not only been given the task to to explain the gospel, but to explain the implications of the gospel. I've been tasked with applying it, meaning the fact that both Jews and Gentiles are heirs, that Jews and Gentiles are now the people of God. I've been tasked with explaining that, that all people should be coming together under the church. That sounds like a pretty big deal, doesn't it? Do you think it's a big deal to be tasked with pioneering the efforts to preach the gospel and then tell people who haven't gotten along for centuries to finally get along? Yeah, he's saying that's a big deal. And if you're like, yeah, that is a really big deal, he's setting you up. I'm just letting you know he's setting you up because look at what he says. This should bother you. Look at what he says. He says intent was that now through, uh uh-oh, who's the church? Yeah, us, here we go. He's setting us up. You didn't see it coming, but I did. I'm just letting you know. He's saying, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God. That's the preaching of Christ. That is the mystery that Jews and Gentiles should be getting along. The manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. According to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So you say, I don't. I don't get it. Let me explain it. Paul had given, God had given Paul the task of of preaching and sharing and explaining this mystery to the world. But now that torch has been passed to whom? The church. That is us. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, it literally translates as the multiply multicolored. Meaning the wisdom of God is so multi-layered, so much going on there. This wisdom of God that everything that he's doing through Christ, the eternal plan, the salvation, the idea that we should be reconciled, like all of those ideas should be seen in the church. One scholar says, it conveys the sense that God's wisdom takes on varied, glorious, brilliant forms. It is through the church 
This wisdom is put on display for the cosmos. He says the heavenly realms. He's specifically speaking about the evil powers. That this thing out here that kind of controls the affairs of evil, that directs human affairs as well. We'll get into that later. Don't worry. He says, yeah, we are here to put on display for them the wisdom of God. Through the existence of the church, through the fact that people are coming together from different backgrounds, from different cultures, with different colors and different languages and different expectations, through the church where all of that is happening, God's wisdom is put on display. Robert says, as the church proclaims the good news of God's salvation in Christ, and as the church lives out this good news in a unified community, all of heaven and earth will grasp the wonder and the truth of God's plan for the cosmos. The church is a really big deal. The church has been given an amazing task of putting on display God's wisdom and glory. The idea is that through the unity and diversity of the church, people would know that something is happening, that something is different, that my world and my family and my career and my life, none of that makes sense. It's always hostile and there's evil and there's plans. And I look at politicians, like, because of all of this, we look at the church and go, man, something has to be real about that. Because of how they're acting and because of how they're getting along and what they're doing, something has to be real. Do you understand what Paul's saying? What he's saying is when somebody asks you a question about Jesus, when somebody says, how do I know the gospel is true? How do I know the Bible is true? How do I know Jesus is true? You know, maybe you're one of them. That's okay. I understand. Or at least you have friends who just wonder and question and don't get it. You know what Paul says we should be able to do? Just point to the church. Said, oh, you want to know Jesus is real? Look at the church. And they should go, wow, you're right. He must be real for people to get along like that. To which we all said, hmm. Wow. Imagine that. Imagine if instead of apologetics, instead of the scientific, instead of logic, instead of all these other things we try to use to explain Jesus, we simply just showed him the church. And it worked. He says, in him and through faith, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. The idea is that now both Jews and Gentiles can stand before God and pray, can ask him, can talk to him. Then he gets to his thought. I ask you, therefore, do not be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. See, now he circles back and explains why he's in prison. Everything he's been talking about, he's saying, I don't want you to lose confidence because you hear him in prison. Yeah, I know we talked about peace. Yeah, I know we talked about the glory of God. We get all that. Don't be discouraged because I'm in pr prison. He says, I'm suffering for you. You see, Paul is in prison because the gospel is working. Paul is in prison because people are coming to know Jesus Christ. People are putting off their old ways. People are being transformed. Lives are being changed. People are gathering together who once didn't get along, and it's bothering people. 
It's causing disruptions. Read the book of Acts, you'll see all about it. People get all upset when people are throwing away their idols. People are going out of business. I mean, crazy things happen. Paul says, I'm in prison because it's working. You see, Paul paints an amazing picture. We're going to stop there for today. He paints an amazing picture and task of what's really going on in his life. He knows he is suffering for the gospel. I mean, he's literally in prison. But it didn't matter because of what God was doing through the church. You see, God had a plan, and Paul was just a part of that plan. And there's three things I want us to see that's going on in the background of Paul that are extremely important for us to see, and I'll show you why in a second. First, let's see this about Paul. First, Paul knew his life was a means to an end. Paul knew his life was a means to an end. Andy, says, Andy Stanley says this to help us understand that. He says, being a means to an end is what gives things meaning, purpose. If you refuse to become a means to an end, your life will never have meaning. That's the meaning of meaning. Live for yourself and you'll only have yourself to show for yourself. You get that? You can read it, it's right there. Becoming a means to an end in your life takes on meaning. Funerals teach us this. Funerals remind us that the value of life is always measured by how much was given away. Paul knew life wasn't about him. Paul knew he was just a means to an end. The world didn't revolve around him. Everything in life. Anybody ever thought they were in the Truman Show? Y'all seen that movie? Am I dating myself? Y'all seen Truman Show? After the Truman Show, I won. I said, is that every once? I'm like, I wonder if life really... That's horrible, isn't it? Thinking everything revolves around me and all eyes are on me. That's not life. Paul said, I'm not the end goal here. I'm a means to the end. Paul knew he wasn't important. He claimed that over and over. He said, it's the gospel that's important. He said, I'm just a vessel. I'm just an avenue so the preaching of Christ can be made known. I'm just a vessel so people can understand that through Jesus Christ, People can come together and live in harmony, harmony in the kingdom of God. And we see that Paul was more concerned with reaching people with the gospel than his own personal comfort. Paul was more concerned with reaching people with the gospel than he was his personal comfort. Paul gladly suffered so people could know Jesus. And I remember, Paul didn't come up with this idea on his own. He followed a crucified Messiah. I think we forget that. Jesus clearly suffered so you and I could know him. He was beaten. He was whipped. He was nailed to a cross and was left hung in the sun to suffocate and choke on his blood. You see, Jesus suffered so we could know God. Jesus suffered so we could experience salvation. You see, Paul was following his Messiah's footsteps because Paul knew by suffering for others, he was identifying with our Savior. 
This is the first time I'm introducing this to you. We'll talk about it for a little bit, but don't worry. Now that I've introduced it, we'll start building on it later on. This is maybe foreign to some of you, but it's a really big deal. I just can't explain it all today. We'd be here for a long time. Look at Romans 8, 17. He says this. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If we indeed, if indeed we share in his sufferings. I don't, I don't like that. I know. He says, in order that we may also share in his glory. Robert Mount says this. He says, what appears to be a condition on this promise, the inheritance, if indeed, is actually a simple statement of fact. Sharing the sufferings of Christ leads to sharing his glory. Obviously, we do not share in the redemptive suffering of Christ, but we do share the consequences in terms of opposition from the world he came to save. Philippians 3.10 says, I want to know Christ. Again, this is Paul. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings to become like him in death. Peter says the same thing. Look at this, 1 Peter 4.13. He says, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. May we never forget we follow a crucified Messiah. Suffering isn't what anybody wants to do, but it's something we will experience if we live out the gospel. Don't worry, I'm not done. We'll explain it a little bit more. But when you bring these ideas together about the life of Paul, we see Paul was clearly driven by the gospel. You see, the gospel changed his life. Therefore, he gave his life to the gospel. And if you and I have been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we've experienced this new life in him, if we can claim everything in Ephesians 1 and 2 as our story, then we are tasked with giving our life to that gospel and making it known to others. Because that is the only way, as a church, we can live out the description Paul has in Ephesians 3.10. That the manifold wisdom of God is put on display for the cosmos. The only way we can do that is by being driven by the gospel, to be gospel people. Klein Snodgrass says this. He said, we must give attention to the gospel, be defined by the gospel, and solve our problems by applying the gospel. And he's right. Let me explain it. You see, we must first give our attention to the gospel. We must know the gospel, that is, study it. We must get caught up in the boundless riches of Jesus Christ. You can never learn it all. You can never have it all figured out. But you can know him. You can get this uh, mystery revealed because he's, re he's wrote it. We can continue to learn and grasp and getting caught up in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we give our attention to the gospel, I promise you, I mean, I absolutely promise you, you will discover that you are a means to an end. I know that's uncomfortable, but it's just true. The end is God. The end is his glory. The end is always about him. We are just a means to that end. We are simply vessels of the gospel. Our churches are not the end. Our churches are vessels of the gospel. 
The end is the glory of God. The end is the salvation of people coming to worship him. The end is not our comfort. You see, the gospel reveals that life is not about us. This new life in Christ is about him and others. And if you don't understand that, I understand that. But give your attention to the gospel. The whole reason we have this assurance of eternal life and the promise of rewards, the promises of riches and all this amazing stuff is so that we don't focus on this life. That we can give it up because we know there's something better waiting. You see, the kingdom of God must take priority in our life. Jesus says that several times. We just don't have time to look at it. And we must be defined by the gospel. So we give our attention to it. And if you give your attention, then we must define, meaning everything about me is the gospel story now. When we understand the gospel and we give our attention to it, we'll learn that our identity is not found in what we wear, what we drive, where we go to school, what our education is, how much money we make, what my title is. My identity is found in Jesus Christ. He has richly given me all I need for him. And only when, we, when, only when our identity is found in the gospel will we understand suffering is partnering with him. Suffering is identifying with Jesus Christ. Because that's what he's called us to do. He's asked you and I to get in the game. Think of it this way. Think about it like a football game. Anybody ever watch football? Make sure you're not asleep yet. Okay. It's like a football game. When, you, when the coach calls you, you get in the game. Is there suffering during a football game? All those who's ever played football said, absolutely. It's exhausting. It's tiring. I am throwing my body physically at other human beings who are running full speed at me. You are sweating. You are tired. You feel broken. You are suffering. It's not easy. It's very hard. So why do you do it? Because I get to play the game. I get to be a part of the team. Suffering's just included in it. So when the coach calls me and I'm not worried about the suffering, I'm worried about the team, I'm worried about winning, to which that's the idea here, is that the gospel will create suffering because people don't like it, because it's hard. And the idea is that, but God's called you in. So you may have to suffer for it, but it's not a bad thing. You're a part of the team. God has tapped you on the shoulders and said, come on in. You see, the gospel is tough. The gospel game that we're called to live out is tough. But there's more than winning or losing at stake. The eternity of souls is what's on the line. See, the gospel gives us new meaning. By identifying with our Savior, by identifying with his story, saying his story is not our story, and living that out, That is how Paul was able to suffer for the sake of other people, realizing that it was a privilege. It was an amazing privilege for God to tap him on the shoulder and say, get in the game, son. I got something for you. So we must give our attention to it. We must be defined by the gospel. And we must solve our problems by applying the gospel. This is challenging but it's must needed in order to live the gospel out because that's what living out the gospel is. It's applying the gospel to our problems. It's solving life difficulties through the gospel. That's what it is. 
And it's only when we solve our problems through the gospel will we ever be more concerned with reaching people with the good news of Jesus than our own personal comforts. Because if the church is what the Bible says it is, if the church is the place where everyone can come together, it doesn't matter what color you are, it doesn't matter where you're from, it doesn't matter your culture, it doesn't matter your language, it doesn't matter if you're from the north, from the south, from the east, from the west, all people can come together in a church because they are the body of Christ. If that is true, then you're going to have problems because we have a lot of different people involved in that mix. Most of Paul's letters are dealing with these problems. In fact, the early church has dealt with this from the very beginning, and we're so thankful they did. You see, in the book Acts, it tells us a story about Gentiles were becoming a part of the faith. And there were Jewish people who were saying, well, if Gentiles are going to be a part of the faith, they've got to be circumcised. Can you imagine that altar call? <laughs> Think about it. Yeah, they were saying they have to be, in order to be saved, you have to be circumcised. In fact, they went on to say, no, they not only got to be circumcised, they also have to follow the law, all of it. So there was a big debate going on. They ended up going to Jerusalem. They went to all the elders and the apostles, came together and said, we got to solve this problem. This is causing a mess. So they started debating on what to do. Some were saying Gentiles got to do everything. Others were saying, no, that's not true. And so James stood up. James, now, the brother of Jesus, the most influential church leader, he said, no, made my decision. He said, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who were turning to God. We shouldn't make it difficult. Now, we did ask them to not do four things. He said, don't do these four things that are absolutely repulsive to Jewish people. He says, abstain from food that's been offered to idols. Don't eat food that's been strangled and the blood's left in it. Don't touch blood at all. And abstain from sexual morality. You say, well, that's a lot. No, there were 613 laws. They boiled it down to four. And he said, this would be great if you did it. Because basically the Jews wouldn't have been able to handle those things. He knew that. What they did is they took the gospel and they applied it to the problem. They realized that they were trying to impose things on people that Jesus never did. They realized that from their traditions and their cultures, they were asking people who came to Christ to then embrace their culture and their history and to become like them. To which James says, we can't make it difficult for people to come to Christ. Now, did they consider the insiders? Of course they did. They kept four of the 613 commands. You see, when we apply the gospel to our problems we will inevitably face, it will tell us that we are simply means to an end. That we, you and I, are called to suffer for the sake of other people's salvation. And that will drive us to be more concerned with them than our own comfort. Church, we must be gospel people. We must give our attention to it, be defined by it, and allow the gospel to solve our problems. Because our vision for the church is this, a gospel-driven community making God's love known. We want to be driven by the gospel and allow it to solve and answer and explain everything that we do through the story of Ephesians 1 and 2. Why, you may ask? 
So the manifold wisdom of God can be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm so that according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I'm almost done. Just one more thing. I know this can be challenging. I'm well aware of what we talked about and how this can be difficult. But I don't want you and I, I don't want us to miss out on doing what God has asked us to do. I don't want us to miss out on being a vessel to see lives changed with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you see, as a father, I find myself doing things I don't want to do for the sake of someone else all the time. Anybody gone to a kid's movie and paid like $500 to watch it and eat popcorn? Yeah. But last night, there was a father-daughter dance. I'm going to be honest with you. I did not feel like going at all. I was busy. I was distracted. I mean, I had the best excuse you can have. I had to finish my sermon. I am doing the Lord's work. Don't disturbeth me is how I feel. That does not work in my house any longer. I've used it far too many times. So we really didn't talk about it. I really tried to avoid it. Then around 3 o'clock, I went to Daniela, and I said, Daniela, I said, do you, do you want to go to that father-daughter dance? She said, yep, I got to go take a shower. So she ran upstairs to get ready. I continued to work and pout. I'm, I'm just being honest. I was pouting. I was tired. I was worn out. I was just being lazy. And when she came back down, I said, well, Daniela, what do you want me to wear? He says, well, can you wear what you had on last time? I was like, a suit? I do not want to wear a suit. I only have one suit. My suit is actually at the church because that's the only place I ever plan on wearing it. How am I going to do this? So I took her in the closet and I showed her some other clothes. I was like, how about this? She's like, no. She's like, well, Daddy, can you just wear what you had on last time because you looked really cute. <laughs> that broke a little bit. and I said, okay. Now, remember, my mindset's not good. I wasn't, I wasn't a positive person at this time. I went back to doing what I needed to do. I went back to work. I really did. She followed me out in the living room. She knew I was distracted. She knew I wasn't focused. And she looked at me and said, Daddy, are you mad? She said, I had said the right things. I begrudgingly went along with the dress code, with having to do things for her. But she could see through it. I was communicating to my daughter that she wasn't important. And my selfishness almost ruined an amazing night because I was worried about me. Immediately, I shut down everything. I got dressed, and I started focusing on her. And then, when I took my eyes off of me and I put them on her, I saw the twinkling in her eye. I saw the smile that she gave me every single time I looked at her and told her she was pretty. I saw her light up when we danced and when we ate and everything. I could see that this meant so much to her. I could see that we were making memories. I knew we were doing something special. But I had to put her first. Church, 
there is nothing more special than what we do here. We have been given a task by our Lord. We are the hope of the world, the ambassadors of the gospel. We are the ones with the message to point people to Jesus. And I want you to see that every single life that is touched, every baptism that happens, every marriage that is restored, every commitment to the gospel is worth you and I being a bit uncomfortable for. It's worth it. And I just pray you understand that and get that, that the gospel really is that big of a deal. You pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for the gospel. We thank you so much for the life-changing news of Jesus Christ. Father, we know the gospel calls us to get uncomfortable for the sake of others. God, that is hard. But I ask that we grasp how deep your love is. Father, help us see through your eyes. Help us see the world and the people as you see them. Break our hearts for others. Help us come together as a church to put your wisdom on display for the cosmos to see. Father, help us, encourage us to give our intention to the gospel. Father, strengthen us when we get uncomfortable. And allow us to remember that when we're uncomfortable, we are doing what you did. We identify with you, and for that, we can be joyful. For that, we can be excited. So, Father, use us, this church, in a mighty way for your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.